Well, thanks, Dan. It, it is, it's so good to be here with you all and um, just grateful for the opportunity. Thank you, brother, for that and um, Dustin for reading the word and Chris for leading us in, in worship. Um, I feel like I'm getting to know Windsor Community Church little by little. It's too slow for me. I wish I could know and love you more, but it's a joy to serve this family of five churches in Colorado, but even more a joy right now to be able to serve with you in the word of God and to spend time unpacking more of James. One of the joys of just the, the church going through a book of the Bible is that we can pick right up where we left off last week and, and continue on. And so as we continue in the study of James that you're in, in our passage today, um, I want us to think of in terms of um, a, uh, I want us to picture a lens through which we look at our relationships, uh, both with God and with one another. Um, there is a, obviously a gospel lens that we all uh, need to look through as we look at people. And I think that you would agree with me, probably most everybody, I'm guessing you would agree that we could use some help with that right now. Uh, grace and compassion and the gospel and, and good news is kind of in short supply. And we need some help with that right now along the way. Always, of course, but there are certain seasons where it, it certainly is, it feels like in our culture it's more needed. And so anywhere from kind of the big picture polarization and the hatred and the lack of compassion, the division in our culture, um, all the way to really the smaller picture of you in your home, in the four walls of your home and the relationships that you have there. We need help with all of it. And guess what? We all know this, that God, friend, friends, God gives the answer for how to do this people thing. He gives us the answer, even in the middle of some of the most complicated and social circumstances we could be in, like Pastor Dan unpacked last week quite a bit. And, and so we just asked this question, like, how do we think and how do we act? And our text today tells us we act with humility and as recipients of grace, with humility and as recipients of grace. Um, I can remember um, pretty clearly actually the very moment when I realized that I needed to put on reading glasses for the first time. I was in a, a meeting with some guys and we're waiting for a couple others to come and my Bible was open and my notes were open on the table and I, I grabbed one of my buddy's lenses and I said, hey, let me see what I look like in glasses and I put them on and I looked down and I think they were like 1.5 or something like that and I, I looked down and lo and behold, I could see my Bible and the words clearly. Like I had not realized how, how far my vision had faded and how my eyes had begun to get old. And, and, and so there was no squinting or straining or, or holding things further away. It's like, you know how that is. Like my kids will always come up to me with my phone, with their phone and go, look at this dad. And they'll put it like right up in my face. And I'm like, you know, I can't read that that close, you know, and you, I need like a selfie stick to read it out there, you know. And, and so I realized that my eyes had been started going. And so I started wearing readers, reading glasses, you know, 1.5, 2.0. Anybody remember this, you know? And then it happened again 10 years later when I actually went in for a, an exam and got a prescription and got these more expensive than five bucks um, progressive lenses. And now I can see clearly and comfortably at all distances. And I think that we'll see today from James 4 in the passage that we're in that all of us need a certain kind of lens through which to look at and see our relationships clearly. It's the main point of our passage Today, it's especially from verse 6 and verse 10. It's the lens, looking at all of life through the lens of humility before God. And I think, well, you said, Clark, I think you, you said it was more like relationships with people. Well, 
they're absolutely related. We all know this, right? There's a direct connection between the, the vertical relationship that I have with God and how he's treated me and he's loved me and he's graced me and how I treat other people and how I love other people. And so my hope is that as we talk through this today, that, that two things will stand out above the rest. Both our humility before God as we come under him and his goodness to us and then his more grace to us. And, and I'll explain what I mean by that more grace as we go. But um, as we read the passage, I'm sure you noticed that there are two lenses that we can look through. There is, there is the lens of humility before God, and we're going to get there in a second. There's that clear lens, but there's a lens before that that we have to get past, that we have to take off. And it is the cloudy, messy lens of selfish desires. And that lens makes a mess of everything every single time. Look at the first couple of verses. James asked this question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. James pulling from the law, two of the Ten Commands, murder and coveting. He's pulling from that imagery in the law to bring a point to our hearts. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you wrongly ask to spend it on your passions. And so isn't it clear what we already know? Um, like the gospel passage that we read earlier today, the mess in relationships flows from the mess in our hearts. The quarrels and the fights. Um, Dan talked about these last week in chapter 3, verse 14. They, they come out of our selfish ambition, our bitter jealousy. And so uh, Pastor James now at this point is now taking us deeper into our hearts and he's going to unpack that further. He's going he's to dissect that further, what you heard at the end of chapter 3. And here James adds selfish ambition, bitter jealousy, and now it's your passions, verses 1 and verse 3. Your passions, your wants, your desires. It's where we get the English word hedonism. It's, it's self-indulgence, it's satisfaction that comes from getting what I want and selfishness in my life, that internal, deep down desire that ends up controlling me and the way I act on the outside. And the key here, did you hear what James said, is that they're at war within you. These passions, these desires, they're waging war inside. It always strikes me how the New Testament writers, they never choose by the Spirit of God leading them, they never choose these kind of easy coasting kind of words. This is a battle. This is a fight against pride in the flesh. And it leads to severe and sobering things in our hearts. Coveting, desiring what we cannot have and being willing to sin in order to get it. Or, or a murder-like hatred. Remember what Jesus said, that the hatred in our hearts is, is as if we murder. Again, drawing on these two commands from the Ten Commandments. And so you've all talked in James 1 about the mirror of God's word. As you stand and you look into the mirror, it reflects back to you something about your heart, something about our hearts. And this is telling us something crucial about our hearts today. That when I plant my desires in the soil of discontent and I begin to cultivate the ground and I, I feed it with more flesh and fresh and fertile thoughts about what I want, there is no limit to where that can grow. That seed can grow into the most sobering 
things and the greatest violations of God and his ways and his, his law. And so James steps forward here. He's saying, watch out, beware. He's waving the biggest red flag he possibly can and saying, looking at life and relationships through this cloudy, messy, destructive lens of self will lead to even the worst violations of God and his ways. Anger in the heart that Jesus himself called murder. It's a war going on in our hearts, and you feel that sometimes. You feel the tension of it. So I want to I want to ask you to do something wherever you are, whether maybe it's at home or um, close your eyes for a minute and and do do a favor. Picture a large battlefield. Um, you got to make it epic. Like picture this large battlefield. Okay, really close your eyes. Some of you aren't, so do it. And picture a large battlefield. Soldiers on both sides, fit with armor, head to toe. You know, spears and swords thrust out and, and shields up, and they begin to march toward each other, arms length apart, and they're marching and they're marching, and the ground rumbles as they begin to pick up speed, moving toward the opposing force. The tensions and the fears grow, and the, 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 the clashing gets louder, and the battle cries go louder until finally they just crash right in the middle and begin a bloody battle. Now, now go ahead and look up and take whatever it is you began to imagine from that, and the the bloody that battle that ensued from there, and then bring all of that turmoil like right to your heart. And James says, that's what your wants are capable of. That's what your desires are capable of in your own heart, in your own soul. And so the big question is always, is, is what's the battle that's waging war for you? What's the battle waging war in your heart right now? What, what passions desires hedonism, right? That might the Spirit of God be so faithfully identifying in your heart that are so strong, here's the key, that are so strong that you'll sin to get it or your sin in response to not getting it. The fights and quarrels and coveting and anger and hate that is like murder in the heart, all because of what? Because of our pleasures, because of the, it's, it's, it's so simple and almost kind of base, but it's, just because of the things we want, whatever they may be. Verse 3 made it clear that God's not going to hand those things over, right? He says you ask and you have because you don't ask, but then when you ask, you ask for yourself. You ask to spend it on your passions and your pleasures. And, and why would a child of God expect that God is going to answer that and give that blessing to you so you can spend it on yourself? I don't ever get what I want when it's simply about me, right? Because people of true, genuine, the theme of the book you've been going through, faith at work, they're no longer governed by self. End of story. We're no longer, we've submitted ourselves to another control, the Holy Spirit who leads us and, and the love of Jesus that fuels us and the love of the Father that, that constrains us. And we're no longer bound in the name of Christ to functioning and responding to life through the lens of self. You and me, we exist for God and others, period. There's no other ifs, ands, or buts. After that, we exist for God and others. End of story. And so God is so kind to keep pointing. I mean, when will you ever be done dealing with self, selfishness, and pride? And I don't think any of us ever will. If you've figured that out, please call me and let me know. And so God is gracious to keep at it and keep challenging our hearts. And and so for me, there's this ongoing question in my life where I just, I want the Spirit of God to continually answer this. How much of my life 
and especially my mind and my affections, those emotions and affections, how much of it is focused on what I want and don't have? How, does it, how, how much does that, that consume me? I think it was uh, Paul David Tripp that talked about the if-onlys in life. Like, if only I could have this, or if only she would do this, or if only he would do that, or if only I fill in the blank, whatever it might be, and then I'll be at peace, and then I'll be able to function properly. <laughs> For me, when I ask that question, I know that it's always just way more than I would like, so I need to constantly dive into the Word and be reminded that life is better than self. It's better than these gross, messy, internal desires that, that are in my heart. And I've been given, like this passage says, more grace and nearness to God. I've been given, Paul says in Ephesians 1, everything that pertains to life and godliness, spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. I'm sorry, Second Peter is everything pertaining to life and godliness. And then every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places has been deposited into my life if I've trusted Jesus. God has given me, Psalm 63, his steadfast love, his promise-keeping love. He's never going to leave me or forsake me. He keeps his promises through to the end. And he says, that is better than life itself, to have that promise, to have God himself, to be satisfied by him. And so James is leading us to find all of our joy even our pleasures in God, not in self where our flesh will take us every single time, right? Is this too obvious? Is it, is it too simple? You know, I, sometimes I, I feel like this, this battle with self and the flesh and pride, it's, it's just one of these things that seems so simple and yet so hard to battle through. Well, you can see why as we go on to verse four, why James actually doesn't get softer. He continues to kind of hard hammer at home. Are you, are you pursuing selfish pleasures in this way? He hits us really hard. Are you ready for it? Verse 4, you adulterous people, he says. You say, wait a minute, I've been, I've been faithful, unfaithful. I'm, we're not off the hook if we've been faithful in our marriages. Now, certainly that could have been a problem and is a problem at times, but, but I think what James is talking about here is spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery, which will obviously manifest itself sometimes in actual physical adultery. So none of us are off the hook here. This is where our hearts can take us. When you, your desires lead you to sin against one another, quarrels and fights, right? It shows that you are wanting the thing you desire more than God, more than God and his ways. And so it's kind of like James, well, quarrels and conflicts because I'm not getting what I want. Well, that's, that's bad enough. But James says, no, no, the problem is way worse than you think. It's way bigger than you think. You, you, you don't just have, you don't have a, like a horizontal problem with people. You have a vertical problem with God. It's spiritual adultery. Again, another analogy from another of the Ten Commandments, three, the third command. This would have been very familiar to the Jewish believers that James wrote to. How often did God in the Old Testament compare his people Israel to an adulteress, to, to a harlot, essentially a prostitute who was willing to sell herself over to other gods and stay, instead of staying with her beloved husband, God, Yahweh Elohim, instead of staying with him, they wanted a different husband so many times. And so bring it to James. This is that double-mindedness now. You can't serve two masters. You can't have two masters. And so James is going to lay this off. And this is black and white. There's not a whole lot of gray right here. 
in these verses, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scriptures say he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us? See, this familiarity and this friendship with the world uh, takes us back to James 1.27, where James defines True religion that is pure and undefiled. Do you remember that? Pure and undefiled religion before God is to visit widows and orphans. I think we remember that one often because we, we're, we're not so good as the church at the church at, at doing like ministry for the least of these. That's why I would love what WCC is doing in the community. It is to visit widows and orphans, pure and undefiled religion, but it is also to keep yourself unstained from the world. If you're a friend of the world, you're engaging in the sinful passions it offers. This is, there's no gray here. You are an enemy of God. This is some of the most serious New Testament words there are. And there is no safe neutral zone between those two things that kind of like, hey, let me just kind of work it out and figure it out. It, it's safe to ask questions and to pray and to plead and to, to figure it out. But it's not safe to stay there. You're an enemy of God if you're a friend to the world in the sense of a friend with its passions and the, the, the passions that it offers. Remember this, this scattered church has this issue of double-mindedness, struggling with wanting two things at once. That's not faith at work. Faith at work, God-given faith that produces results in our lives, gives this singular and sold-out affection for Jesus and what he calls us to. And God has this good and just and righteous, James says, jealousy for us. Now, he's the only being who can have a jealousy that is perfectly righteous. But he has this jealousy, this holy husband-like jealousy over us because, I believe James is talking about, the Holy Spirit he has put into us. He, he himself lives in us, so he has this jealousy over us for his bride, the people of God, people of true he loves his people. Catch this now, please. He loves his people. He loves you so perfectly, so relentlessly, so deeply that he will not tolerate a single rival. Not a single rival. He loves you so deeply, so relentlessly, so deeply, and so perfectly that he will not allow a single rival. He wants my most powerful desires. He wants my deepest affections. All of my passions given over to him for him. Oh man, husbands, you, you can feel this a little bit. You know what this is. You, you have a protective, passionate, very driven jealousy over your wives, which to a point is righteous. Now it can become unrighteous pretty quick, right? For all of us. But it is, by and large, a good jealousy motivated out of a, a love for her and passion for her. How much more our creator for us, his bride, the church. And he longs for and he has affections for and he yearns over us to the point of this holy, righteous, consuming fire jealousy. He loves his people. He loves you that much. 
And he knows that what he has to give through his grace in Christ and his spirit who dwells in us is infinitely greater than all of those passions, all of those desires, all of those, those things that your spirit wants. He says, want me. I am the greatest gift. And so it's no wonder that he wants us to, to take off this cloudy, messy lens of selfish desires, which makes a mess of everything every single time. And he wants us to put on tight to our eyes the clear lens of humility before God. Think about, is this hard? Is it challenging? Does it, does it feel a bit like kind of a heavy burden? It's, it's possible, if you're like me, you're, you, you think, man, I want so bad to, to see faith at work in my life. I, I want to see it producing results, but I just don't seem to be able to get it right. Well, here's the answer to the problem. We all have that problem. And this is the high point of this passage. It's verse 6. Here's the answer. But he gives more grace. Isn't that good news? But he gives more grace. I mean, think of that in this context, what we're talking about. We make all the messes, and he gives all the grace. He gives more grace. All the grace you've understood so far, either in your life or in the text this morning or in the book of James or all the Bible, all that you've come to comprehend, God still has more than you can possibly comprehend. Therefore, it says, verse 6, continuing again, pulling from a few places in the Old Testament, therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Here's what we need to remember as we step forward in this life of faith. This is faith at work right here. You got to believe this. You got to trust this. All that God asks of us, he provides for us. All that God asks of us, he provides for us. That's grace upon grace and more grace. The undeserved riches of his kindness to us, his favor to us through his work in his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross and raising from the dead to free us from sin and death and hell. If you truly desire this greater grace for all that God requires of you, your responsibility, my responsibility in this whole thing is simply to bow our hearts, to bend our wills. Did you catch the connection? He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Come under grace. It's time to literally humble ourselves means to get low. You say, well, I'm already pretty low. Well, get lower. I mean in humility. I don't mean like in depression or anything like that. I'm talking about being low and humble before God. I mean, all, on the one hand, all you got to do is look at the love of God and the holiness of God, and, and you know it's well worth it. You know it if you, if you trust and you believe in what God's saying. But on the other hand, again, James is... James is hardlining with us. He tells us in no uncertain terms that God is not indifferent to you if you reject that abundant supply of more grace. What does it say in the verse? It says he opposes you. He's not indifferent to you. He will not stand for an arrogant uh, self-sufficiency that drives you and me just to kind of get what we want in life. We've got to see the connection. He gives more grace, therefore, he 
get humble. Come to the end of yourself. Receive and keep receiving. God is pouring out this lavish grace. And that's all of life. That's the, that's the journey of life, isn't it? To continue to understand the grace of God and walk in it and live in it in humility. And so what James does next here is, is, is he, he moves into really a kind of hard-hitting, if that wasn't hard-hitting enough yet, and what he said to us, but now there's this hard-hitting battle plan to wage war on pride, to get that lens of humility more tightly fitted to our eyes. And so here comes this series of fast-moving commands. Uh, the, your pastors have taught you about imperatives, these commands, all through the book of James. And here's a whole bunch of them right in a row. But commands, remember this always, you got you to gotta circle, underline, highlight more grace at the beginning of verse 6 because we can only obey these things in his abundant supply of more grace. It's, it's what he gives to rescue us from the first five verses, and it's what he gives to help us walk in the remaining four verses. So look at this plan for repentance, this battle against pride. Three quick pairs of commands to embrace, one in seven, eight, and nine. The first one is get submitted and get on guard. These are, this is the tone in which James is writing this. Get submitted and get on guard. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, since he's opposed to the proud, gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Two things, submission to God, resistance to the devil, therein is the bloody battleground of humility and pride. We're called to joyfully remain under his desire. That's what it means to submit, right? He has our best in mind, and so being submitted to him is the best place to be. It's like an umbrella of protection submitted to him as he lavishes grace upon, him, upon us, and from there, we can stand and resist the devil. The enemy, the deceiver, he's the father of pride, right? And how he would love for you and me to think that we can find a better way of life on our own. Or how he would love for you and me to think that the problems between people are, are just these external things and not actually what's going inside our hearts. Pride, even just a little, he'll make it subtle and devious and destructive. And so, yes, we are commanded here in the more grace of God to stand our ground against him, to oppose the devil. It's a battle, like Paul says, that is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. How the enemy would love for us to think that all of the problems that are going on right now are, are because of this guy across from me who disagrees with me. Or this commentator over here who's saying something I don't like. How he would love for us to focus there and not right here in our own hearts. Where we need to evaluate pride and come under grace. So really in this context, resisting the devil means fighting the pride, resisting the pride that he champions. Apart from that, you're fair game for the roaring lion who roams about seeking whom he may devour. Oh, how good it is to be submitted to God and to his more grace. So James says, get submitted, get on guard. Next set of commands, verse 8. Get near, get pure. Get near and get pure. You, you get the sense and you know you can't do these things on your own. You need God's more grace. Verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. You double-minded. 
Sinners and double-minded in this context are the same group that James is challenging actually throughout the letter to change, to come to the place of repentance. People like you and me struggling with the problem of a sin quest for their own desires over those desires of God. Again, desires so great that we'll sin to get them, desires so great we'll sin in response to not getting them. And friends, the plan is so good, it is shocking. The plan for this is so good, it, is, it blows me away. It's the good news of the gospel. God doesn't say here, James doesn't say in his word here, get your act together, get your ducks in a row, make sure you get rid of all that sin and wrong desire in your heart, and then you can come near. No. God wants the sinner and the double-minded to draw near when? Right now. Right now. Isn't God's more grace just amazing that, that in the ugliest, messiest display of quarreling and fighting and selfishness and sinful, adulterous, double-minded desire, God says, draw near to me. Isn't it humbling? Do you wrestle with sin? Do you, do you have trouble with being double-minded at times, conflict between you and and what you want and what God wants, of course you do. And so do I, and so do we all. And in that, God invites us, no, actually, he commands us, it's an imperative, as a way of life to seek him, to draw near to him in all of our mess. Come near to him, and what does it say? He'll clean our hands of sin, and he'll purify our hearts of its double-mindedness. Again, James drawing from the Old Testament where David says, you're a people of clean hands and pure heart. God makes you a people of clean hands and a pure heart. And see, all of this can just be so freeing and so amazingly joyful if we just surrender. See, the joy in life and being right with God and genuinely loving others is it's not found in striving real hard to get your act together and but in a humble heart that gets low and draws near to God. And from that place, you look up and you hear Jesus again say things like, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Jesus in his blood, his blood-bought sacrifice on the cross, that's where you and I get pure. Again, all of this is just this, this hard-hitting plan, this battle plan against pride, this battle plan to, to this pathway to repentance. And so let's get the lens on a little bit tighter. Each command sort of builds on the next. Verse 9, now James says, get serious and get sorrowful. So I thought I was coming to church to get encouraged today. I thought I was turning on this video to get encouraged today. And then James says something like this, verse 9, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. I would not encourage this as a life verse. You know, that verse that you sign off on and everything, and not a verse, the first place you would go to for encouragement necessarily, but I want you to recognize it is so good what God's saying here. This is how we're to look at the sin of pride in our lives, to deal with it passionately. Pride, no matter how little in any little part of life or the corner of your heart that's not humbly submitted to God. This is all about repentance. 
like turning from that quest in verses 1 to 5 for, for selfish desires that cause all these quarrels and conflicts. And, and James saying, leave that behind. Come to the God of grace. Be sorrowful over that. If there's pride in your life, in your heart, then be wretched and mourn. This is just a description of repentance, internal sorrow and grief. You know, you know what it feels like. Like you, you've been in an argument or you've, you've sinned against another person in your pride and you walk away from it and the Spirit of God convicts you and you just feel dirty and gross and like, why did I do that? It didn't do anything for him or her or, or for me for that case. You know what that feels like. And James says, get low, be wretched, mourn. And then the internal struggle then comes out in tears, weep, cry. Not every time, of course, and some more than others, but that inner turmoil comes out from the sin. James is saying basically this. He's saying if you're, if you're laughing in your pride, if you're joyful in your prideful state, stop and turn it to mourning. You've got no reason to be happy. If you have any sense of satisfaction in your, your self and your pursuit of selfish desires, your, again, passions, then stop. Turn it to gloom. Get low, humble yourself, submit to God, and learn to live life soaked in the abundance of his more grace. And the pathway there is this powerful call to repentance from pride. Saying on our knees, I'm no longer content with my own way of life and looking at any part of it through a human lens. I want to live it all through the lens of humility before God, coming under God. That's God's best. It's not about wallowing in guilt over sin or getting depressed that, that, over our failures and our weaknesses. That's just really kind of more dialing into self, isn't it? Humility and getting low and all this repentance language is about throwing off myself, not thinking more of myself. He's saying, if you want God's best, then get your lowest. So he says it one more time in verse 10. One command all by itself. Get submitted, get on guard, get near, get pure, get serious, get sorrowful. And in case you didn't hear it the first time and all the different ways that he said it in between, here it is one more time, James says, get humble. Verse 10, here's where we end. Humble yourselves, therefore, before God, and he will exalt you. See, this summarizes all the commands that James has been giving up to this point. All of it ends with this. Humble yourself. Get, get lower. Come to a lower place where you recognize God is greater. You are lesser. This passage is not about giving us some like steps to handling our conflicts or a, a formula for making our relationships better. No, it's just telling us, yield to God. Come under. Learn submission. Learn the joy of being in that, that joyful, protective place of humility before God, where he gives more grace. That's the very best place to be because look what happens. Look carefully what happens here. What would the, the James 1.17, the father of lights who gives good gifts from above, what would that father do with a humble, repentance, repentant sinner? James tells us, verse 10, that he becomes our lifter. Get low, he will exalt you. You see, biblical Christianity is constantly turning the way of the world upside down. 
asserting self and getting for self and trusting self and believing in self and all of that stuff for self is the place furthest from God's abundant blessing. And God says, no, get humble, and then that's where the lavish blessing comes in submission to me. Because of the good news of Jesus Christ and his work for us, think about this, past, he exalted us, he lifted us up with Jesus out of our sinful condition through genuine faith in Christ. When he, when he was crucified on the cross, he took our sin to the grave, conquered it, and he exalted us. He lifts us daily through more and more grace, given lavish grace poured out on us from discouragement and failure and weakness, and ultimately one day, he will lift us, exalt us with Jesus for all eternity. Friends, this is his more grace. And what do you and I have to do with it? What is our part in it? Our part is to bend our knee. If you want God's best, then get your lowest. So that is the clear lens of humility before God that James puts before us. That's the picture. That's not the word that he uses, but it's the picture of a clear lens of looking through all of life, relationships with God and with others through this lens of humility. And it changes everything about us, especially how we relate to others and think of others and how we love others. Again, it comes down to like the, the passage we read at the beginning of the service. It comes down to the two great commands, love God and love others. It's amazing how that happens so often in the scriptures. Um, I, I love my progressive lenses. I, I wish I didn't have to use them, but I love them because they give me right now what I need to see clearly at all distances. And, and I can keep getting exams and getting checkups, and, and every few years, I'm not very good about it, but I can adjust the prescription, and then I'll see clearly again. And I can keep doing that until one day when I have perfectly new eyes in heaven, and I don't need them anymore. And that's where Jesus has taken us every single day. So as we finish today, what, what are the adjustments that God might be making in your heart along the way? What are the things he's doing? He's always at it. Like, we don't make an appointment and go to a doctor. Like, God is always at it, amen? Thankfully, he is. But what's the one thing, maybe this today in this message, um, if you go like, if you're like me, like one thing, like there's always way more than one thing, but maybe just one thing today you can bring to God and say, I need to humble myself. Where is pride and conflict and self coming out because of that mess inside, that fleshly desire, whatever it is, but he gives more grace. So let's humble ourselves. Let's, let's know and experience the joy of repentance from pride and looking to faith up at Jesus, the one who leads us each step of the way. What will it look for, like for you in this season, this, this week, even today, right now, in all the noise and all the mess, what will it look like for you to live as a humbled recipient of God's more grace? Maybe even good to write that down on a card. I am a humbled recipient of God's grace. And put that all over the place and see how that impacts you as you begin to think through that clear lens of humility before God. God, help us. Father, this, today we need your, your help in more ways than we can possibly articulate. 
I know that in, in those that have, have heard it today and have, are considering this message and considering their own pride and if anything like me, like I know that God, you're doing a work and you're, you're rooting out pride and you're making us more like Jesus. And I just pray with all my heart that you would do that for your people. And that God, if there's those uh, out there hearing this that have not yet bent their knee to Jesus, that you would draw them near, know them, know, that they would know the joy of being under a loving Father who gives good gifts and lavish grace to his people. And they would trust Jesus once and for all. God, we are grateful for the way you have redeemed us. You've given us life, the way you keep at us, you keep working on us. Make me more humble with each step I take in this walk of faith that works. In Jesus' name, amen.